Greetings and welcome to Turkey Book Talk episode number 166. Thank you for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. And in this episode, we hear from Suat Kinikliolu. He is author of a detailed report called Eurasianism in Turkey, just published by the Center for Applied Turkey Studies of the German Institute for International and Security Affairs. In its Turkish guise, Eurasianism is, to put it mildly, extremely sceptical of NATO and Turkey's traditional Western alignment, instead favouring much closer strategic cooperation with either China or Russia, or both. Kinik Kliolu's report quotes the scholar Igor Torbakov describing both Russian and Turkish Eurasianism as, quote, a kind of counter-hegemonic vision that is advanced as an alternative to a Western-led and specifically US-led globalization project. It also talks about how nationalist Islamism and Eurasianism overlap as they both despise Western dominance in the international order, feeling threatened by the liberal cultural civilizational siege of the West. The report comes at a timely moment, published shortly after Russia launched its invasion of Ukraine, and after recent years when these Eurasianist ideas had a considerable impact on Turkish foreign policy. We talk about that in the interview, but before we get started, remember that you can find our entire archive of episodes going right back to 2015 over at turkeybooktalk.com. We're also on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter, and you can support the podcast by becoming a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member gets you numerous extras, including an exclusive discount of 35% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman history series. Every one of the hundreds of Turkey Ottoman history titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury is available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 35% discount. Members get a special code to use at the online checkout, and that deal is valid for all physical books, pre-orders, and e-books. If you'd rather read these interviews than listen to them, then good news because Turkey Book Talk members receive a PDF transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, I also send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of each episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is obviously ideal if you want to delve that bit deeper. To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge three dollars, three euros, or two pounds fifty or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our conversation with Suat Kinikliolu. We talk about the effects that Russia's invasion of Ukraine is having on Eurasianism in Turkey later in our conversation. But I started by asking him to outline some of the ideological positions advocated by Turkish Eurasianists. Is it correct to summarize their beliefs as being fundamentally anti-US in favor of strategic geopolitical alignment with Russia and China and in favor of an autarkic protectionist economy bolstered by ultranationalist ideology on the domestic front? Exactly. It's it's very anti-hegemonic. It's anti-Western. Um, it sees the world and Eurasia in this respect, Turkey and uh, and Russia as well, as being encircled, threatened by a liberal 
Western values, civilization, it sees itself under siege and, and, and advocates neo-Eurasianism as an, uh, a recipe to, to counter that, to combat that. It really sees the West and especially what it defines as the, you know, the Atlanticist alliance, which they mean the United States and the UK primarily, as the sort of main adversary of, of, of a Eurasian civilization. In the Turkish context, uh, Eurasia comes into the picture in the 90s, but more so as a consequence of the uh, collapse of the Soviet Union and the opening up of the Caucasus and Central Asia to Turkish policymakers. And, you know, Turgut Özal, Süleyman Demirel, two presidents who were keen on developing Turkey's relations with these regions you know, saw Eurasia or, you know, that geography as an opportunity, an economic and political opportunity to increase Turkey's influence in the world. Uh, the famous dictum that a new world had opened up to Turkey, stretching from the Adriatic to the Chinese border or to the Chinese wall, was sort of a famous dictum at the time. But for Eurasianism to really acquire the political meaning it was the Perinçek Idolnik group with these conferences, and it coincided to a time when Turkey's relations with the United States and many European countries deteriorated. The 90s, as we know, has been a very violent decade for Turkey. Turkey's fight against the PKK. Then, of course, the invasion of Iraq. Then, of course, the emergence of a Kurdish entity in, in northern Iraq, etc. So you see, neo-Eurasianism is, is mostly becoming popular when Turkey's relations with the West deteriorate. And we see now the more recent episodes of this going on when after 2013, when the Gezi Park protests you know, erupted, Afterwards, 2015, when the AKP lost its parliamentary majority for the first time, and then this violent period between um, the election in June and up to November 2015. And then, of course, President Erdogan's choice to form a new coalition with more ultra-nationalist components of Turkey's political spectrum, namely the MHP, and the unofficial partner, which is which are these Eurasianists or the, the Perinçek group or the Vatan Party. And then, of course, the coup attempt. So this, again, coincides to a deterioration uh, of relations between Turkey and the West, specifically the United States. I mean, on the intellectual side, you know, one has to underline that Turkish Eurasianism is not as sophisticated or, uh, you know, widely read or widely discussed as the Russian version, because the Russian version is really more, has a lot, a lot longer history and, you know, it comes after a longer intellectual debate about what direction Russia should take. Whereas the Turkish version of Eurasianism is, is much more recent, less sophisticated, and pretty much comes down to this anti-hegemonic, anti-American, anti-Western sort of narrative. You know, we continue to see how all of this will, will play out. But right now, with the uh, invasion of Ukraine, you know, we see, luckily, uh, that this, these issues much more discussed openly, both on social media and also on traditional media. I think we are in the midst of a healthy uh, discussion on 
you know, Turkey's orientation, Turkey's alliance relationships and in where all of this Euro-Asia fits in. Yes, let's come on to Ukraine a bit later on. As you say there, you know, their role or the role of this kind of thinking, perhaps more specifically, has become more prominent really since, particularly since 2016, with the intensification of anti-Western rhetoric really from the government, from Erdogan, and very cold winds blowing with the US and the Mm -hmm. EU for a number of reasons, really. Uh, And it's in that context that Eurasianism as a worldview has really risen in prominence and has started to shape a lot of the way that various issues uh, in international politics are framed in Turkey. And it's also in that context where we've seen a number of figures. You mentioned Dol Perinçek, for example. He was a staunch opponent of Erdogan in the 2000s in the first couple of terms yeah. of the AKP. And now he uh, yeah. now he ended up throwing his weight well and truly behind Erdogan and this new rhetoric that was coming from Erdogan. So it's a, it's a real yes. about turn that we've seen. Yes, and I actually addressed this in my report. Uh, there's a section called the, the Neo-Eurasian, it's Peculiar Reversal of Fortunes, which deals with this. And, uh, you know, it needs to be underlined that Perinchek and many of these Euro-Asianists fortunes really remarkably turned around uh, due to an intra-Islamist fight uh, between the Gulenists and the government. And had it not been for this sort of ferocious fight for power between these two camps, uh, it seems unlikely that these guys would ever get out of prison and become as influential uh, as they are uh, in shaping the narrative uh, in Turkey and also influencing foreign and security policy in Turkey. So it really was in the aftermath of the Ergenekon and Balios trials, when the fight intensified between the Gulenists and um, uh, Erdogan's AKP in late 2013, I think, in March 2014, then the government decided to release all of these Argenikon and Balios, you know, people who were who were in prison at the time. Some of them serving lengthy prison terms, and then the reason for that was really Erdogan understood that these Euroasianists were really primordial enemies of the Gulenists, and as he was preparing for liquidating and you know getting rid of all of the gunanists from turkish politics and public life he decided to let them let them out and and have them as allies as you said um, you know perinchek was staunchly uh, against Erdogan and, and under normal circumstances his politics do not you know overlap at all with uh, with Erdogan's worldview but we saw a very um, convenient overlapping of interests in both sides wanting to liquidate the the Gulenists and that's how they got back into into the game and um, they transformed from being villains and prisoners into um, coalition partners and power holders in Turkish politics. So, yeah, that was a remarkable turnaround for them. Let me also give you a bit of detail on on the different types of, of Eurasianists. My research suggested that there are four different, roughly four different groups that we could define as Eurasianists. One, of course, is the one, the most important and the ones that we have been mentioning is the Perinçek group uh, or the Aydınlık group, which is under the Vatan Party. Then we have, as a second group, we have non-Perinçekists, uh, Eurasianists, 
who are you know scattered around places like Sözcü, TV stations like Oda TV or Varyansan TV or Kırmızı Kedi Publishing House. And uh, I would actually include te- Tele One uh, TV station to that as well. Uh, the third group that I, I found was the more traditionally nationalist, right-wing nationalist groups, anti-Western Turkist circles. We could see in MHP and EE Party and also in the idealists' hearth. And the last, probably the, the least significant of them was, is, is what I described as the Islamist Eurasianists who are scattered among some think tanks, but most importantly have uh, influence in the palace uh, around President Erdogan, but have more domestic political concerns in mind rather than uh, a grand vision about geopolitics and really see Eurasianism as a medium to to extend Turkish authoritarianism uh, around Erdogan's leadership. So, yeah, so roughly we talk about four groups, but what needs to be understood is that Euro-Asianists, they are scattered around different political parties. This is also an advantage of this ideology, that it is rather fluid, and it's like an umbrella that at different times for different purposes may bring very different people together. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think it it does get to this point, you know, it's very easy to sort of go down the rabbit hole really and say these people are Eurasianists and say this is what they think and this is who they are and then list, you know, a number of prominent names. But I think, you know, it's actually more helpful as you do to sort of identify instead these discrete characteristics of this very broad framework of Eurasianist ideas Mm -hmm. and it's probably better to think of it as that general framework or worldview and almost every political strain seems to draw on it in a different way so rather than saying you know Perinçek is the chief Eurasianist in in Turkey it's just Uh this set of ideas that loads of different people can draw on including Erdogan increasingly in recent years and strands of this thinking are really just an open book and everybody's tempted to flirt with some of them at different times you say in Mm -hmm. the report Quote, the true significance of Turkish Eurasianism does not lie in its capacity to shape foreign and security policy, although that can't be totally disregarded. Rather, its real contribution to the current regime comes from its critical role in widening and solidifying consent to authoritarian rule in Turkey. I think that gets to the heart of it. You know, there you're talking about the role of this broad framework of Eurasianist ideas, this particular worldview in shaping public discourse and framing various issues and how those issues are discussed. Yes, uh, that's really the comes to the, you know, uh, hits the heart of what, what I was trying to say in my report. When you first approach the subject, you actually think that this is going to be more about foreign and security policy. But actually, my research demonstrated to me that actually the real significance comes in two parts. One, it's widening and solidifying the consent to authoritarian rule, whose leader conveniently is President Erdogan at the moment. And uh, secondly, it also uh, allows Turkish authoritarianism to tap into audiences and, and voter groups that are normally not under uh, under its domain. And it, it, it allows the governing coalition to earn votes or sympathy or support from very secular audiences. So I think 
my, my view is that, that Turkish Eurasianists are, are in favor of a very strong state whose interests preferably they would describe. But uh, even at the moment, under the current regime, they are happy to see an authoritarian order who is, has distant relations to the West, the European Union and the United States and allows Eurasianists to, uh, to be very present, active, allows them to act, to shape the debate in Turkey. And I think the, the Ukraine crisis has shown quite clearly how if influential all of these commentators and news outlets and, and some intellectuals and writers have been in portraying what's going on there in a very pro-Russian light. So I think in, in some respect, they have achieved their objective. But yeah, many people, many especially Westerners, were perplexed about Turkey's foreign policy choices for some time since 2013, but more so since 2015 and 2016. But I, I, I think the real impact of this group comes really in legitimizing Turkish authoritarianism. And that's something that I hope that, that people will take away from the report when they read it. Talk about this phenomenon of retired generals and military officers as pundits on TV, because these are pretty much a ubiquitous presence as talking heads on Turkish news channels. And many of the most prominent of these figures, these retired military figures, are basically Eurasianists vehemently yes. anti-Western, pro-Russia and pro-China. Just give us a role of yes. the idea that they play and the scale of their influence, essentially. Well, what is remarkable about these uh, men uh, is that um, they have served pretty much throughout their professional life in a, in a NATO army. And when they retire, it turns out that they are adamantly anti-Western, very pro-Russian, and seem to admire President Putin and his Russian nationalist, you know, orthodox rule in uh, in in Russia. They uh, also admire China. You know, they think that both China and Russia will challenge the United States and Europe and the West overall. And their role throughout this crisis has, cre has created quite a bit of a debate on social media, of which I'm part of. A lot of people obviously are extremely upset about the way they interpret all these war crimes and the, the, the naked aggression that Russia has inflicted upon on Ukraine. I, I mean, there's no doubt that the government's sort of sympathies with Ukraine and the fact that the government has sold these armed drones to Ukraine, which have proven to be very effective in, in, in the war theater, has helped, you know, counter some of this pro-Russian interpretation of, of events. But there's no doubt that, in my view, Russia's investment into Turkish traditional and social media has had an, an impressive impact. I mean, Sputnik Turkey has more than 1 million followers in, in the Turkish social media, which is now banned in many European countries, but continues to influence Turkish public debate. We saw this when Turkey acquired the S-400 um, missile defense system, where we saw actually Sputnik Turkey pretty much marketing Russian war aircraft to Turkish public opinion. 
which was outrageous in my view. I think this whole network of both very effective information warfare applied by by Russia and also this organized sort of investment that they seem to have make made into these retired generals TV and online TV outlets um, is is impressive and remarkable that in in a major NATO country which has the second largest army within NATO and such a geostrategically important country it says a lot about Russia's ability to influence Turkey's domestic debate and also Russia's sophisticated approach towards Turkey their success i think needs to be recognized here but it's it's obviously uh, now running into uh, cold facts such as you know Russia winning in Ukraine is detrimental to Turkey's national interests especially in the Black Sea but also overall uh, if Russia would succeed in Ukraine and Poland or the Baltics would be threatened by Russia Turkey as a NATO country would no longer be able to enjoy this somewhat neutral status that it has been able to keep until now Do you think that these figures who we're seeing on TV that we're talking about these retired military figures you say there that they're part of this influence campaign essentially of Russia but is there evidence of that or is there more of a sense that these figures are coming to these opinions of their own accord they believe this stuff some of them may have connections obviously to to Moscow but they and many members of the public are quite capable also of favoring these pro-Russian positions without being manipulated right. themselves you know when you listen to them you can tell that it gets to something sort of instinctive and powerful that people want to believe in a certain way because it taps into this resentment towards the west which is pretty strong yes. and it doesn't need money behind it to right. spread well thanks for bringing this up because i just wrote a piece for politikyol about this I've been following Birgün which is a a socialist media outlet and one that I thought was somewhat more sane uh, than, than some of these Ulusalcı or Eurasianists outlets. You're right. Uh, part of the problem I'm not saying that all of these people are somehow engaged with Moscow. What I'm saying is you know official outlets like Sputnik and all these radio stations like Radio China which broadcasts in in Turkish uh you know these are obviously official outlets but these retired generals and some of these social or traditional media outlets they really have a very archaic understanding of 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 the world they still think many of them unfortunately still think in sort of cold war terms and have sort of a, a, a the illusion that Russia remains this sort of socialist ideal and uh, cling to it and i think some parts of it is also really this this sort of syndrome i think among turks you know that goes very deep into you know you know the disintegration of the ottoman empire trying to catch up with western progress and modernity but stay you know not being able to catch up you know not being accepted into the european union despite all its efforts etc i think it's a very complicated phenomenon that comes together when you see these retired generals on tv with with a big stick telling you know everyone that russia would be in kiev in 3 days because that's what they really wish for because 
the world, uh, I think, in their minds is very much binary between the West and the rest. And whoever among the rest stands up and actually shows some teeth to the West is instantly seen as sort of the the favorite underdog that that our culture would be eager to to support. Um, And in this case, it's Russia. But there are problems. In 2020, as you know, 33 Turkish soldiers were killed by Russian aircraft in Idlib. You know, Uyghur Turks are under what some people describe as a genocide, others as concentration camps, you know, under Chinese rule. So all of this is really adding to a very clouded sort of picture for many Turkish observers and, and the Turkish public. But I, I agree with you that some of uh, you know, some and perhaps many of these commentators do believe in, in, you know, a multipolar world where the West would not be the only source of, of reference, where Turkey or a country like a middle-sized country like Turkey could choose or potentially even play one to the other, which is what President Erdogan has been trying to do in the last couple of years. So um, there is this sort of sense of, of sort of a complex syndrome. But what is strange is that these people spent their professional lives serving in an army that is a member to NATO. And there is this peculiar phenomenon out there. I, I you know, I'm for, I myself am a former Air Force officer and I, I studied four years in the Turkish Air Force Academy. So I have some understanding of how officers are educated in, in, in Turkey. But this is a very unique sort of and peculiar way, this sort of anti-Western, deeply sort of ingrained feeling comes out uh, in a very pro-Russian way, anti-NATO, anti-Western. Of course, they call it anti-imperialist, etc. So, um, yeah, let me stop here. Maybe I spoke too long on that. Now, let's get on to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, because with that invasion, with the events that we've seen since February, some people in Turkey have started talking about essentially the death of Eurasianism. They see it as going down this cul-de-sac and all the contradictions of it have been exposed. And this invasion Mm -hmm. of Ukraine finally exposes basically the fantasy of this vision of Russia as an alternative Mm -hmm. pole for Turkey. It seems a bit naive to me, you know, a bit over-optimistic to be arguing that. What do you think of that argument that's come out? Actually, I agree. It's it's a, it's a bit naive. We also need to see how this whole thing will play out. But according to what we know until now, Russia has lost quite a bit of prestige and played this very wrongly, I would say. I think no one expected the European Union and the Americans to quickly unite and show, uh, you know, all these sanctions and this political turnaround, especially in Germany and other countries. So that has been a big surprise. uh, And there's no doubt that there is a rethink in Ankara that perhaps, you know, the understanding that the West was in, in sort of inevitable decline is is not really, it's not so simple, and that the West actually might come back uh, as a, uh, a dominant player in the system. But I think more than this sort of pro-Russian view, what needs to be registered for people who watch Turkey is really this 
this Turkish urge for strategic autonomy away from the West. That's something that's more durable. And I don't I think it will survive Erdogan as well. I think in a post-Erdogan Turkey, we will not see an instant you know, return to the golden years when Turkey is seen as a staunch NATO ally, which acts in every case uh, with Washington. We will probably continue to see Turkey wanting to exercise as much strategic autonomy as possible. But there's no doubt, especially if Russia will be defeated, if there will be a sort of mediocre way of ending this conflict where perhaps what will Russia will have will be a ruined Donbass region and, and the Crimea, which would show the futility of this whole carnage and 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 Russia's sort of whole reputation as a formidable military power. I think Turkey has already started to see that its former understanding of of current affairs, that the West was disunited, was only interested in its, its economic interests, would be dealing with the devil uh, as long as it serves its own interests, etc., that there is a rethink. I think Turkey will probably look at NATO and its relationship with the European Union and the United States uh, again. And actually, we already see in Turkish foreign policy for a year or so a sort of correction to you know picking up a fight with everyone uh, in the neighborhood. Uh, we've seen it with normalized attempts to normalize with Israel, with the United Arab Emirates, uh, with Egypt, uh, with Greece, and now uh, I think. Uh, um, there's also signs that there could be some sort of softening with the Americans on F-16 purchases and, and, and other things. So, um, yeah, I agree. In the longer term, I think you can't write off Russia yet. Perhaps Russia will continue to be an attraction to some circles within Turkish politics, especially in view of Turkey's urge for strategic autonomy. But in comparison with a month ago, I think the picture has changed and deteriorated for, for the pro-Russian circles quite a bit. To, <laughs> including myself, it's been very unexpected that um, the Biden administration actually handled this really well. After the United States with clumsy withdrawal from Afghanistan, this has been rather uh, orderly and uniting leadership from Washington. And the changes in in Europe, which finally realized how threatening this could be to uh, the continent, uh, has been remarkable, surprising and refreshing. And I think it will precipitate a rethink in Ankara about these things. The problem I always think is that, you know, there's been years of investment in this rhetoric that has really seeded this strong suspicion of the West, of these traditional partners in NATO that has come right from the top from Erdogan in speeches every day. He's hammered these points home. And now to mm -hmm. try this uh, rapprochement that's definitely yeah. taken on a lot of momentum, the difficulty is selling that to the public because I think a lot of people already have these impulses that are pretty sympathetic towards Eurasianist ways of thinking in the public. And it's really been yeah. legitimized in the last few years. And doing a 180 degree turn from that, we're talking there about these retired generals all over the TV. You know, they've been mm -hmm. propagating ideas for years. They're not going anywhere. Those ideas have definitely found their audience. And for the government now to sort of turn around and try and rekindle things with the West, it's a question mark about how far they can take the public along with them, essentially, if 
they continue to go down this road of patching up relations with Europe, patching up relations mm-hmm. with the US and other regional powers that they've had pretty rocky relations with over the last decade or so. Yes, but, you know, especially President Erdogan has a, a remarkable capability to, to take millions of Turks with him. I've seen this when, you know, I was in, 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 in the parliament with the AKP when uh, the AKP was pro-European and trying to join the European Union. And I saw with my own eyes how millions of conservative Turks, you know, adopted a pro-European position because Erdogan was capable of taking them down that road. And equally, he has taken them now, uh, make them, as you said, very skeptical of the European Union, the West in general. But, you know, President Erdogan's primary concern is really political survival. And if his if his needs require him to make another turnaround, I think, you know, he has perhaps not as much as, as it used to be, but he still has the capacity to take a lot of millions of conservative Turks with a new direction. And it will be it will be packaged in, you know, Turkey's national interest requires that. But the real sticking point is really the Kurdish component in, in northern Syria, the YPG issue. That is really the, the heart of the matter. I mean, if there are, if there could be a, a U.S. adjustment to that policy, very optimistically speaking, I don't expect it, but a, a sort of grand bargain with the Kurds domestically that would also have an impact on the status of, of the Syrian Kurds. All of this is, you know, it looks far-fetched, but um, it's not really totally out of the, the doable. As you know, the United States dropped its support for Greece and Greek Cyprus on this uh, Eastern Mediterranean hydrocarbon resources issue. So you see that the United States also understands that Turkey should not be lost and Turkey should somehow be anchored into the NATO alliance and the West. If that would happen, if if you know either Erdogan or a post-Erdogan Turkey would make that turn around, those generals and those TV commentators will become more marginalized and you will you won't be seeing them. The Turkish media will quickly adapt and they will there will be other <laughs> other commentators on TV. But you're right. I'm not so much concerned about the public uh, perception, but I'm more concerned about the elite perception. Um, those elites will not go away. Those elites will be around and they will continue to influence and, and, and try to shape the narrative. But our political culture is very much power sensitive. And, and I think once power shifts towards a more pro-European or pro-Western position, pragmatism will, will, uh, will have the upper hand in my, in my view. And looking ahead, you talk at the end of the report about the coming years, and you talked a bit about it just in our conversation there, but you describe basically Eurasianism, that way of looking at the world, as here to stay, essentially. Uh, You say Turkish Eurasianism remains a relatively small component of Turkish nationalist imagination, while the urge for Turkish strategic autonomy from the West seems more durable than the expiration date for the current governing coalition. Consequently, Europe needs to brace itself and take Turkey's search for autonomy from the West seriously, rather than seeing it merely as a trait of Erdogan's erratic policies. The Turkish instinct for strategic autonomy from the West is here to stay. So again, you're gesturing there to these ideas as having support really across the spectrum, and it's deeper than just the latest thing promoted by Erdogan. And in a post-Erdogan era, these ideas are likely to still be a significant force, even if we see patching things up with the West at the moment being the flavour of the month. 
the kind of thinking that you talk about in the report is pretty durable and it, and it goes deeper than just the Erdogan administration. And once in some kind of hypothetical future Erdogan is out of there, this kind of thinking is not going to go away anywhere. And that's what the point that you make in the report. Uh, yes, I, I believe it's this this urge for strategic autonomy is 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 durable. It will remain. And one of the reasons for that is what Erdogan and the AKP government in the last 20 years has succeeded in is to facilitate a reawakening of the Ottoman Empire. You know, the, we are the heirs of a glorious empire, you know, regardless of what the historic truth is and how much or how complicated that history was for many others. The fact is, you know, many Turks are much more proud today about their Ottoman past than they were 20 years ago. It's a recognition that, you know, Turkey was a a great imperial power, a big power player in European politics. B, it also has relevance to geography. And I, we see this also with, with Russians, you know, now with Ukraine, especially. Among Russians also, this you know, the loss of geography is not something easily forgotten among elites. And in the Turkish case, where we chose under Kemalist Turkey to, to recognize the loss and live with it, now we have that being rekindled. And I think this urge for strategic autonomy is kind of tied to, you know, linked to this sort of, you know, Turkey is not an, an ordinary nation state. Turkey is more than that. I'm not saying this in necessarily in a sort of irredentist sort of way that Turkey or post-Adoan Turkey is going to go up into Kirkuk or whatever. But even when, when the AKP was pro-European, we were very much irritated that, you know, some Europeans reminded us that we are just an ordinary applicant country like Slovakia. You know, it was hard to stomach. But I think what 20 years of Erdoganism has succeeded is it has instilled a higher awareness of historic slash Ottoman reality and what that means for being a Turk or a Turkish elite or a Turkish decision maker in the future. So this urge for strategic autonomy is, I think, in one way also saying Turkey is not an ordinary nation state. It's a regional power that needs to be treated respectfully and accordingly. Now, obviously, the last eight, if not more, nine years has seen Turkey's influence, global influence, go down, the economy being in shambles, anything that resembled a democracy being gone, rule of law, freedom of expression, freedom of assembly, etc. But still, as you very well know, as someone living in Istanbul, nationalism is a very strong tra trait in, you know, in the Turkish consciousness. Turks are proud of their country. And I think when I say this urge for strategic autonomy is likely to survive President Erdogan's time in office, I think this is something that would be useful for European or Western decision makers to keep in mind when they work or are thinking of cooperating with Turkey, be it within NATO or other formats such as the uh, accession process uh, that Turkey is in. 
I had the impression with many of my colleagues when we spoke about Turkey that this sort of urge for strategic autonomy was something peculiar to uh, the AKP and that once Erdogan was out of office that this would no longer be the case. And I think I wanted to make a point that I think this this sort of sentiment or this sort of strain in, in Turkish politics is, is more durable than some Turkish observers uh, tend to believe. That was Suat Kinekliolu. Sincere thanks to him for joining for episode number 166. Remember, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can support us by joining as a member on Patreon. Membership gets you that 35% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. You can also support Turkey Book Talk by rating it or writing a positive review wherever you listen. Follow via our website turkeybooktalk.com, our Twitter, Facebook or Instagram accounts or all of them. Recommend Turkey Book Talk to a friend or indeed a foe. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners, so do send any feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. And finally, let me once again remind you to check out a friend of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is a weekly email newsletter that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. They've also got a Slack channel now for signed up members who want more. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links there to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.